Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hymn text comes to us from Romans this morning. And Paul writes, in part, that the law of God is not dead. It cannot be killed. Because the law has been issued by the Lord God of heaven and earth. Paul in Romans, which Luther calls the chief part of the New Testament, is confronted by legalists who are opposing the gospel. Now there's two gross misuses of the law of God. One of them is legalism. Legalism is very much a pharisaical use of the law of God. It holds that works righteousness produced by the law are held in high esteem. Not only are they held in high esteem according to the, to the works of man, but they're held in high esteem by God. This is sort of the theology of keeping your nose clean. And by keeping your nose clean, God will be forced to judge you righteous because you're a legalist. By the way, this is how Paul had lived before the gospel was proclaimed unto him. Paul was a legalist. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee amongst the Pharisees. He exceeded all of his brothers in this legalistic understanding of how you would live your life before the Lord God Almighty. And this gross legalism is still practiced. It's still practiced in Christian churches today. Many, many churches are still practicing this legalism. It is a theology of you do the works. The other, the other thing's probably worse than this gross sort of brand of legalism, which is not the gospel, is falling off of the log, so to speak, on the other side of the river. This is what we call antinomianism. I know antinomianism is a really big word, and I, I would love to not have to throw this word at you, but I don't know what else to call it. It is antinomianism. It is from the Greek, it means anti, which is against, and nomos, which means law. It is against the law. An anti-aircraft gun kills aircraft. An anti-tank gun kills tanks. And an anti-law gun kills the law. Antinomian and being against the law is an altogether bogus heresy practiced by many, many, many churches in America. And probably there are more antinomian churches in America now than there are of legalist churches in America. And the antinomian churches believe, teach, and confess that there just something isn't much of a law left. That God doesn't really care what you live, just be a good human being, and that's basically all that you need to do. God doesn't care. God approves of everything, and in these churches, God tends to be a bylaw. They really don't talk much about God the Father Almighty. They almost never preach upon the Old Testament. They don't like Paul very much either. They like to talk about Jesus when Jesus is being nice and, and funny. God the Father becomes some doddering old grandfather in heaven that doesn't see very well and he can't hear very well and he doesn't really care what everybody's doing just so long as you're nice to people. A careful reading of Romans enables us to realize that that is not at all what Paul is trying to teach. And he does not invalidate the law. Paul does not despise the law. The law, is of, <clears throat> the 
The law of God is of extreme importance to the Christian life. Because the law of God is more than just a set of rules. The law of God is more than just the Ten Commandments. The law of God is more than just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's more than some sort of unsophisticated morality. You cannot be saved by doing the law. You cannot be saved by ignoring the law. The law does its work, and its work is important, and he does it well. The law shows us our sin. The law shows us that we need to be saved. The law shows us that we need a Savior. The law makes us conscious of sin. The law magnifies our sin. It condemns us. It tells us what we did wrong. It makes us feel awful. And it should. This is why antinomianism is so bad. Because if I don't preach the law unto you, you're not going to know the law. And if you don't know the law, you won't know you've breached the law. If you don't know you've breached the law, you're still dead in your trespasses, whether you know it or not. Well, that's not a very nice thing for a pastor to do, is it? To just leave you dead in your trespasses and go, well, you're okay, I'm okay. Keep cashing them checks and I'll keep using them. Whether you know it or not. And your opinion doesn't matter. Your friend's opinion doesn't matter. Your mom's opinion doesn't matter. Your boss's opinion, the president's opinion doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. If you don't know the law, you're breaching the law, you're still dead in your sins. You're still dead in your trespasses. And believe it or not, God actually does care about you. And God cares how you live. He cares about your decisions that you make. And sinners are subject to the law of death. And the law will never impart life. The law will never tell you that you're good. That's just not what it does. The law never tells you you're good. The law, you know what the law does? It breeds guilt and shame and depression and anger and cynicism. That's what it's built for. That's what, it's, uh, that's what it does. That's what God gave it to us. As long as you're still under the law, the law will continually do its work in you. By A, awakening the desire to do those things which are contrary unto God, and B, by condemning you within your own mind. That you are guilty of breaking the law, that you have shame over those things that you have done, and it will breed in you anger and depression and cynicism. The law judges you, it condemns you unto death, it kills you, and the law cannot impart life. It has never imparted life, it has never given salvation to anybody, and it's not going to give salvation unto you. It cannot save you. And it cannot save you if you do every single bit of the law, which you can't do, by the way. But if you did do every single dot and jittle of the law, it wouldn't save you. And if you ignore it and just do whatever it is that you want and nobody ever condemns you for anything that you've ever done, it's still not going to save you. So why have it? Why do we have it? Because God loves you. God cares about you. He cares about how you live. He cares about how we live in a community. For any deliverance for the law to occur, a death must be proclaimed. Paul uses the analogy of a marriage. Now, it's an analogy, by the way. I think it can be broken down and 
very wise and sophisticated people have tried to break this illustration down because they, they like antinomianism. Do you not know, brothers? I'm speaking to you who know the law. The law is binding upon a person as long as one lives. For a married woman is bound to the law to her husband while he lives. And if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage accordingly. She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free of that law. And if she marries another man, then she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, if you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear good fruit for God. For any partner to be set free from a marriage covenant, a death must occur. <clears throat> a will works in the very same way. Right? A will cannot be in effect until the testator, the person that writes the will, dies. In my will, I have everything going to my son, right? But it doesn't do him any good until I what? Until I die. Well, I die and his mother dies. And he fights off his sister. But that's, that's, another, that's another question. Similarly, in Scripture, a death had to occur for liberty to be granted. And since God himself is the testator, because God himself is the author of the law, in order to be set free from that law, the person who has to die has got to be who? God. That death has to be of God himself because God is the author of the will. The man that died in question is Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man, so that we know that we might be then, after the death, be united to a new man. That we might be united to a new husband who is then raised from the dead. By the one man's obedience, our relationship under the law and under God, the author of the law, has changed drastically and forever by Jesus' obedience unto the Father. Jesus, who has undone what the first man did. The punishment that has fallen upon all of us because of the sins that we have committed and the sins of Adam and Eve have been undone not by legalism, not by antinomianism, not by doing the law, not by ignoring the law, but by Jesus fulfilling the law and dying in, with, and under the law in our place. And then Jesus passes this inheritance onto us, his offspring. Jesus Christ, who was without sin and did not deserve to die because death had no authority over him, because he had not broken the law, yet he allowed himself to be subject to our humanness, to be identified with our sin, placed himself under the law that was written by the finger of God the Father Almighty. Jesus did this in order to take our place under the law. We who are actually guilty of breaking the law. 
And in doing so, Jesus has set us free from the demands and the accusations forever. Our husband, the law, has died and, was, and we have been united to a new husband who's been raised from the dead, who is Jesus Christ. God the Father was pleased with the sacrifice of his son. This death expedited all of the sins from the world once and for all. In addition, the law no longer condemns those of us who are in Christ because the law has been fulfilled. It is the good news of our salvation that by the one man's obedience, you have been made right with God once and for all. How can this be? How can we become partakers of such glorious good news? That is what the gospel is, this incredibly good news that we've been rescued from the burden of our sin, that our sins have been forgiven, that they've been atoned with by the Lord Jesus Christ who put himself under the law so that we wouldn't have to. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive then the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, Acts chapter 2. Partakers of the saving work in Christ by repenting of our sins, that is the Holy Spirit moving us away from our sins and into the cross of Jesus Christ. When asked upon his deathbed where his hope of salvation lie, Luther, who had plenty of things that he could have pointed to, he doesn't say that I believe in my salvation because I translated the New and the Old Testament into German or because I stood up to the Pope or because I did this or because I did this on his deathbed. Martin Luther replies, I am confident in my salvation because I have been baptized. Through water and the word, I've been placed into the death of Christ. I died. Baptism, a death occurs that frees us from the lordship of sin and death and hell. It frees us from the lordship of the old man. It frees us from the lordship of the old death. It frees us from the lordship of our old husband who is now dead. In Romans chapter 6, Paul openly shows this through our baptism. You are joined to Christ's death, signifying that you too, through baptism, have died once and all to sin and are raised up to the newness of life through Jesus Christ. As Luther puts it, in baptism, sin is taken away by a spiritual means. That is, the will to commit sin has been put to death. So here, in chapter 7, he shows the logical consequences of we who have been freed from sin. The law can no longer accuse you of your sin. It has no grounds to accuse you of sin because you can only be tried once. You who are sinners can only be tried once. And that trial has already been held. And that verdict has already been carried out. On Christ Jesus, you were found guilty. And you are guilty. And you know you're guilty, right? 
We say this in church every week. I know that I am a sinner, right? I am, you are, a lying, philandering, cowardly, hate-filled, thieving, covetous idolater who really didn't want to get up this morning. You wanted to stay in bed, and part of you are thinking, boy, I should have. Because he ain't never going to stop. Sorry. We know this to be true. Thanks be to God. Right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we rely upon legalism and say, well, I, I haven't committed any sins. I've, I've kept my nose clean. I did all of these things. Then the truth is not in you. If you ignore the law of God, you're like, well, Jesus never talked about that. And Jesus never talked about that. And I don't even know how to read the Old Testament. You're still going to be dead in your sins. So unlike the legalist who claims that he doesn't have any sin, you've been saved from yours. Unlike the antinomianism who claims that there isn't any sin, you know your sin, you've repented of it, and you're saved from yours. You, you, oh blessed Lutherans, baptized children of God, you know your sin and you readily admit your sin and you turn from your sin, you reject it, you regret it. We call this repentance. God save me from myself. Now you've met the demands of the law. And the demand of that law is your death. And you cannot be judged twice for the same offense. The law always has the power over those who are living, but you are no longer living. You have died. Jesus says that. That you need to be born again. In order to be born again, you have to first what? Die. And you did. In the waters of baptism, your old self died and you have been reborn of Christ Jesus. You are a new creation. You are different than everybody else in the world. Life lived in, with, and under the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God, underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ, a new Adam, a new husband. You are the bride of Christ. Now, Paul says... Verse 6, we were released from the law, having died to it, which held us captive. So that now we serve in a new way, a new spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Baptism creates faith in Christ Jesus. Baptism opens the door to heaven. And through baptism, God delivers you from sin and death and hell. In baptism, you have been delivered from the devil and you've been received into the kingdom of Christ. And God has delivered you. He has reborn you. And I'm trying to put as much birth language as I can into this. Through the broken waters of baptism, you are reborn as a new child of God. And yet the old Adam still clings to us and daily needs to be washed away through repentance. This is what we call the baptismal life. A poor beggar who needs to be clothed and fed daily by our Lord Jesus Christ, which is why he gathers up his bride every single week and says, come unto me, you who are wearied and heavy laden, and I will give you rest and he gathers us around word and sacrament 
And we begin with remembering our baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we confess our sins, we repent of our sins, we receive his forgiveness, and he feeds us with his own body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins and the strengthening of our faith. God comes here and he unites heaven and earth. He comes to give us a foretaste of the feast to come. This your God does for you. It is a precious gift. Because your God does love you. He loves you very much. And he's very concerned about how and what you do and how you live so that you will be the children of the heavenly Father. Glory be to God the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. Amen.